0: Michael, so we're here in the middle of COVID nineteen. So this is it's always good to let listeners know when this is being when this is being recorded because I feel like it's a different world.
1: Yeah, it definitely will provide context, I think, to pretty much all of our comments.
0: Right, right. And so we're inside our homes and You know, I think
1: we always are inside our homes when we record. And I I think we should point that out. That's true. We've been inside our homes for for months at this point.
0: It's good to point out that has not changed. That is actually similar. (laughs) So I think one thing that is interesting is, you know, students spend a lot of time at school, but they spend a lot of time outside of school too, you know, and that's a really important part of development. And even a really important part of what your education looks like is what that time outside of school looks like and what your community looks like. And, you know, I don't, I don't know that we've given that enough attention and I know people always say it, but it's hard as a teacher to give, to focus on that a lot every day. You know what I mean? Because it feels like it's, it's both a such the, what happens outside of school is, is so much out of your control.
1: Right you can control your classroom for the most part, but like you can control what you bring in for the most part, but mm-hmm. yeah the, what's going on outside of the school it's it's kind of difficult for a teacher to to do something not that they can't do anything obviously but right
0: but you you know you have your standards and you have your lessons to teach and it's easy to get for us all to get caught up in that and I think one one complaint I've had about curriculum and education is it actually so often, pulls us apart from the issues in our world right like because we're supposed to study this specific standard and on this sequence we don't have time to study the things that are most important in our lives and communities and figure out like what can we learn about those and and how we can do something about them
1: are you saying that the war of 1812 doesn't have that much of a, a pertinence in today's society
0: specifically that's what i was getting at you know how i feel about the war of 1812 oh i do i do I don't remember who was fighting who it
1: was the it was the it was the sequel to the american revolution yeah there are bombs bursting in air
0: i you tell me so i believe you and i have traces of that but it never resonated as that important to me
1: Uh, oliver hazard perry come on
0: (laughs) i'll put in i'm gonna put in the the comedic S- satirical video on the war of 1812 which i think we've mentioned at least in one other episode oh i'm it, sure I'm it's sure. one of my favorite things where the actors can't remember why they're fighting who and who they're fighting it's very good and we're gonna we're gonna drop that in there for you guys but yeah i mean the like sometimes it seems like you know maybe chronologically working our three way through u.s history misses the point that for example if there's a crisis in our community or if a pandemic's happening or something maybe it's time to look at that issue thematically and think about how can history and geography and, and the social studies inform us about that issue.
1: Yeah, I definitely think it's up for discussion.
0: Well, so like it's with, I have, I have more freedom than most teachers do at the college level, right? So when coronavirus broke out, I, I did create like a week where my students and I, we tried to understand, you know, the 1918 the Spanish Sp- flu. Spanish flu, right? Or the 1918 influenza? I guess people have gotten away from associating the geographic area, even though if you know the Spanish, because flu, it had nothing to do with nothing- Spain. Well, Spain Except was just for the, the
1: fact, only- fact that Spain wasn't suppressing their news.
0: Right, they were like an honest country, so it's called the Spanish flu. Um And we yeah, go yeah. back, go back and listen to our episode with Kenneth E. Davis, learning much on, on that one. It's a very relevant episode if you haven't gotten a chance. to Listen to episode 101, Learning Much with Kenneth C. Davis. He talks a lot about his book on the topic. But yeah, I was able to just kind of change my plans and help my students think about... It's an elementary social studies methods class. And so we were able to talk about, learn some history about what had happened in the past and then think about what are lessons you could teach. So we talked about like, how do you talk about a difficult issue like this with children? We Mm -hmm. looked at like, how could you, for example, use pictures to talk about mask wearing in the present and in the past? um and explain why that was a thing so we talked about how this could be a topic that could inform today right and it was great that we were able to do that and i don't know i've always been a big fan of more thematic and responsive social studies as opposed to like we have to map everything out just the out. march through time yeah yeah and but i like the march through time too cuz i like history and i like so you know i actually do oh, get yeah. into almost anything so we had
1: to pare down our curriculum uh because we're Teaching in a well a truncated session, and so that's been it's been a really fun discussion with uh with colleagues.
0: So I, th- if people are wondering, as they often do during our intros, where are you going with this? Um, today we're we're going to talk about a crisis that's ha- been happening in community long before you know coronavirus has happened, and, and it's another crisis that's related to ecological issues, um, and and impacts students and their learning a lot, but has kind of gone in and out of the national radar and largely been ignored, except for like in little spots, um, I feel like. And so we would love to welcome in a past guest, which officially means she's a friend of the pod.
2: I'd like to welcome back Annie
0: Whitlock. Annie Whitlock.
2: Hi, everybody. Glad to be here from my house, Michigan.
0: Also at a house.
2: <laughs> Where I have been for several months now.
0: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> And so Annie was with us on episode 94 because she was a co-editor with myself and Mark Helmsing on a Keywords in the Social Studies book. But Annie, for those people that just need a refresher, could you tell us a little bit about who is Annie Whitlock?
2: Well, Annie Whitlock grew up in Michigan, and this is very relevant to this podcast. I've lived here my whole life, but at this point in time, I live in Clarston, Michigan, which is about 20 minutes south of Flint. And uh, Flint is where I work. I spent probably more time in Flint than I do at my own house (laughs) because I have been a uh, education professor there since 2013. So Flint is very much a part of my heart and my head. And I got there in 2013, right before the water crisis hit there. So it has really changed my life and the trajectory of my career and my work in ways that I had not anticipated (laughs) prior to starting my academic journey.
1: Can you just give us a brief background? And obviously this has been in the public sphere for a while, but can you just give us a brief background of the the water crisis in Flint?
2: Yeah, so many people probably first heard about the water crisis in 2016, but it really goes back much farther than that. In fact, the official can't see my air quotes, first day of the water crisis is sort of officially listed as April 25th, 2014. So we're just came up on the six-year anniversary of not having clean water in the city Uh, because that is the official day that a switch was made to use Flint River water as opposed to Lake Huron water that came from Detroit. So you really got to know your um, geography. And again, if we weren't on a podcast, I'd be showing you my hand map because that's what everybody from Michigan does. Um, But basically, Flint was getting its water from Lake Huron through the uh, Great Lakes Water Authority in Detroit. And Detroit was, you know, pumping the water up to Flint. It's about, I don't know how many miles away, but it's, Detroit and Flint are about an hour. In the Midwest, we also measure things by minutes away instead of miles as much. So Flint and Detroit are about an hour away. Um, And Flint was its its biggest customer, but it was beginning to be very expensive to have that water up there and travel so far. So, um, and many people have probably known Flint before the water crisis. If you knew Flint, you didn't, probably didn't know it for anything good, unfortunately. It's a, City with a high rate of violent crime. It's often associated with a drastic population loss from General Motors. You may have heard of it from Roger and me, Michael Moore, in right. the about the kind of the destruction of GM in the city. So if you've heard of Flint before the water crisis, you know of it for its kind of being a depressed community in that sense. So it didn't have money to pay for this water price hike. So it decided, the, the city decided to move to using the Flint River as a water source instead of Lake Huron. A couple problems with that, though, is that the state did not use a corrosion control agent in the Flint River water. So when the water comes through the old pipes in the city, the water wasn't treated enough, and it basically was pulling the lead from the pipes into everybody's houses. So when that switch was officially made in 2014, a lot of people consider that, you know, the very first day uh, that we started using Flint River water. But a lot of people actually attribute the start of it to the people behind all these money saving decisions, including our governor Rick Snyder at the time and his emergency manager law. People aren't familiar with EM laws or emergency manager laws. Essentially in 2011 our our then governor passed a law that said that he could appoint an emergency financial manager, they're often called, to basically be running the finances of any city or municipality or even school district in the state if he felt it was necessary. And that person can make all financial decisions for the city, uh, regardless of a city council vote or a referendum from their constituents. Um, And that person is not elected, just appointed by the governor. Um, So a lot of people will trace back the water crisis even further to 2011 or even 2010 when Governor Snyder was elected um, because all those things sort of lead to this chain reaction to the Flint River water being used. But basically as soon as the switch was made within weeks, uh, residents were noticing Really terrible things happening, like they're getting rashes from bathing in the water, or their hair falling out, or um, pets getting sick and dying. Right around this time, I was finishing my first year as a professor, right around the switch. The time of the switch was like the end of my first year in Flint, and people were protesting the switch even before it happened. There were water activists in the city that knew this wasn't going to work, or knew this wasn't a right choice. They didn't necessarily know that. They were going to be poisoned by lead, or that the state wasn't using, um, or the Flint water treatment plant wasn't using corrosion control. But they knew that we, they didn't have the resources to make the switch. And so people were, there were definitely Flint residents that were on top of this even before the water switch happened.
0: So this is, I mean, going going back to what our conversation started with. I mean, what a social studies issue. And if if I can if I can take a social studies perspective for a second it's you know the old problems of democracy course which used to be offered across the united states was looking at an issue like this and then using a social studies lens and think about all what annie just said in introducing this issue there's clear economic issues to study and there's clear civic and municipal issues um i think just even the very idea of studying where water and food and other things come from right right now during coronavirus we're already hearing some issues about uh, meat supply chains and issues like that. And I think a lot of people, you know, some people maybe don't, but a lot of people take it for granted or don't even understand where Mm -hmm. things come from. And so, and then these geographic issues, right. That you've already brought up about where do different places get their water. So like using those social studies lenses could really deepen our understanding about the decisions that have to be made, but also look at the, uh, the government levels that often most impact our life, right? We focus so much on these like culture war issues, I feel like in social studies, which I'm not saying that those don't have some kind of place in understanding those dialogues in our field, but we fail to look at like infrastructural issues like these, which in this case are just really impacted people's lives. So I just see such a rich issue that studying it would make, would also, there's a logical outcome of activism that comes from this, that something really wrong has happened in flint and also i mean the the city as you described it already is a city that's often been ignored um correct me if i'm wrong right flint is largely a black city um and so probably another uh you know reason why there's a lack of infrastructure and attention to this issue because it's been given less attention for me there's also a familial issue because my dad's from flint and so like i make i'm really Really? interested in understanding it because of that too
1: so he's a he's a
0: Flintstone. That's right, Michael. Annie already taught us that if you didn't know that's okay. our that's that's our cheat that people from Flint uh, sometimes get that nickname. So that's there was a television
1: show with the same name. <laughs> that is also we think they might
0: be related. It, it might have Michael thinks it may have taken place in the same place, but we have not done that research yet. That
2: yeah. So We're not sure.
0: So, Annie, tell us, can you tell us more about this issue and how it's affecting students and teachers and teacher prep programs? I mean, like what how how have you wrestled with this?
2: Well, that's really interesting, and I think I have to give a little bit of my personal story with this because that's all intertwined. And I, I have to say right off the bat, you know, my my narrative of the water crisis is not a universal narrative by any means. Talked about Flintstones. I don't think I can even technically call myself a Flintstone since I do not live in Flint, and I think that's a really important distinction to make. But so my narrative and my story and what I went through is very different from anyone else's, and in fact, I think that's pretty true, and you can even see that with the with the pandemic we're currently in you know we're all sort of dealing with trauma but it's very different depending on where you might be so for me that it came through my work right so i work in flint i spend lots of time in flint and i drank the poison water for many months on our campus which is right in downtown flint and uh And so obviously so are my students. So if they come there, if they commute to Flint to go to school, they were drinking the water on campus. Many of my students um, also live in Flint. And so they were drinking the Flint water as well. So this is actually, my students were actually the people that sort of first alerted me to some things that were really, really wrong. So this is good, good lesson to listening to your students, because I was, we were getting these um, boil water advisories on campus and we're being told you know the water was fine or what you know and I would go to the you know I was pregnant with my daughter at the time which is also a real you know a scary thing for me and I would go you know to our drinking fountain and next to my office and you fill up my water bottle and it would come out like opaque white and they'd be like oh it's just the, just they're just doing something with the tap like it's gotta settle like this was what (laughs) they would tell people and it was my students my students that would be like Oh, you know, that's, you know, you know, that's not right. You know, they were, they were the ones that were saying like, we were paying for so much that we're paying so much for this water and it's poison, you know, it's poison, right? And like, and I'm like, wait, what? Like they you know, everyone's saying it's fine. And you know, they're the ones like living it and being able to bring that to my classroom was really important for me. But so I heard about it through them because, you know, they were actually, their water bills were exorbitantly high, because of the so few people in Flint to pay these, you know, public utilities. So Flint actually had one of the highest rates of water um, water bills in the country, but yet had no, you couldn't drink it. So really like, thought like 2015, like right after I gave birth to my daughter, was when my students were alerting me to this. And then it really blew up when Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha had managed to prove her statistics that it was actually affecting children in Flint. And so that's when, I guess, I think about like our education department really looked at this and went, oh, this is something that we can't, like you were mentioning, we can't ignore. I mean, this is where we're sending our students out into the schools where... Children have been poisoned by lead, but then our, also our students have been poisoned by lead. So we have to take care of our students as well. And then many of us were dealing with the fact that we were also poisoned by lead. So as a faculty, so it's a lot of, it, there was a lot of complicated emotions and it got even harder when the world found out about us. So I call that like 2016 is when everyone heard of Flint. And then before, it seemed like within just a few weeks, it went from my, you know, Nice quiet campus to like um, celebrities, like in my local coffee shop, like news crews, like shooting B-roll footage as I'm trying to walk to my office. Presidential primary debate with Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton was on uh, was in Flint, and they were using our campus uh, rec center and library for like the the media collection and like the CNN group and would broadcast from there, and it was. My students felt very, some of my students at the time felt very put out by this. Like that these people didn't know what we were really dealing with. Um, one of my students, you know, I'd have to just stop. Class. For a while, I would just, they'd get to class and I'd be like, do we, what do we want to, are you okay? Do you just want to chat for a little bit? <laughs> because you'd go, it was such a disruption. To daily life, the people hearing about us, the you know coverage of the water crisis, and a lot of them were just like, "I'm so angry. I'm just so people are not going to care about this in a couple months, but I'm going to have to live with this my whole life." And that really stuck with me because you know my colleagues, my social studies colleagues, were talking about, "Well, how am I going to teach about Flint? This is such a..." interesting current event right now in 2016 it was really like well, this is such an important social issue and I would get messages like how are you teaching about this I have to be like I'm not teaching about this at all because we're living it so I'm just processing it with my students and that was kind of this interesting thing that I didn't really anticipate people would ask well how are you teaching about this and it wasn't until much later that I was actually able to put this into lessons and into like my methods courses. It was just too raw, like in that moment, right around 2016. So it's interesting to think about what I brought into it Well, not much in the beginning.
0: <laughs> Although I would say, you know, processing it with your students is teaching, right? I mean, that's listening, listening to your students, understanding their concerns, being able to have conversations about their concerns, right? Like, and I think we discount that also as a, as a source of knowledge and an important part of, of, like, social studies knowledge, right? Like, before we formalize it into some kind of curriculum like I was talking about. Um, and I think that's, like, such an important skill right now that, like, I, I've kind of looked to Mr. Rogers for, like, my tips on that, right? Like, about talking about different things, which is largely about hearing someone and understanding what they need and what they need to talk about I mean, that's an important skill. I think sometimes we don't teach enough or emphasize enough in schools. It's difficult. I struggle with it because you have to have the right environment that students will trust you enough to tell you how they really feel about something important. And sometimes ever, so all discussions aren't for the entire class. Um, sometimes discussions need to happen in you know small groups or one-on-one. So that's a real challenge. I mean, did you, I mean, at the time, but then also you're, you're navigating it yourself. So.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of complicated emotions. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, my daughter was born with some birth complications and um, has recently been diagnosed with autism and we can't connect that to the lead necessarily, but it got me, but possibly, right. So it got me thinking a lot about going forward. Right. So you talked about like how you, how I dealt with it with my, my students, my college students in the moment is very different than how I talk about it with them now six years later, right? So in the moment, we're just processing like, you know, Mark Ruffalo was in my coffee shop and like (laughs) Cher is tweeting about me (laughs) and then like just in the insanity of that life, right? Not about me personally, about Flint in general. Um, But then now, six years later, things look really different. Now I have a kindergartner. I have a daughter who's about to go to kindergarten in the fall, hopefully, (laughs) we have kindergarten exists in this <laughs> day time. but it got me thinking about uh, this next set of kindergartners in flint that are going to start their school system in flint community schools in fall 2020 they are the ones whose moms were pregnant with them when this first started just like me that possibly drank the lead tainted water for a long time even long after they had their child their children so I have to think about, so what's that going to do now? Like what's that impact lasting on the water crisis? So in the moment we can talk about how, you know, I feel our anger and talk about like why people are just going to ignore us later. Well, what are we going to, how are we going to change education in Flint going forward now? Because it's not over for us in many ways. I think it's really just started if we're going into education and if we're talking about education in Flint, we have, to, we're looking at the fact that, it's estimated that as many, possibly even 60% of incoming Flint kindergartners will need some sort of special education services of some kind as a result of the water crisis. And depending on who you talk to about this, a lot of people think we should just assume that 100% of the kids have been affected by this in some way, shape, or form. Maybe, you know, if it's not cognitively, but they've been traumatized by, you know, having to you know, bathe in bottled water still, because that still happens in the city. So you, a lot of people think it doesn't matter. We, it, we have to think of all these children as needing some sort of service of some kind, right? Trauma-informed education, possibly, or even just rethinking our classroom practices to be more inclusive for everyone, because we have to assume everybody has been affected by this. There's a lot of discussion in the city about whether the school district, the Flint community schools, now there's a lot of school districts in the surrounding area that have different levels of resources, but Flint community schools in particular is kind of like, it's a real point of pride in the city because at one point it was a real thriving school system. It was the community schools model, the neighborhood schools model. So it like, if you had your neighborhood school, it was really like the hub of the community in Flint. And trust me, like one thing I learned, even even though I did not grow up in Flint, I have learned that when people talk, when people meet each other, it's like, "What elementary school did you go to?" Or what well, high school, especially what high school? Are you Flint Northern, Are you Flint Central, Are you Southwestern. Like their point of pride for the the schools that they went to because of this neighborhood system. But there's a lot of people questioning now whether this school district that was, you know, once considered one of the best in the country is prepared to handle what they're about to get, (laughs) which is, it's even more than what they've been dealing with, which is also a lot for the last six years. There's been a lot of uh, transition in in the district with superintendents gosh, I think since 2013, since I started working in Flint, so this is like, what, like seven years now, I think they've had like five superintendents. And just last week, the most recent superintendent was fired. So there's just, this happened just like just a few days ago. So this is constant turnover. And there are parents that are, I think, that are actually suing the school district because they don't feel like they have the capability to adequately educate their students with special needs. So this is so I have to think about how I'm going to send my students into Flint Community Schools because we do partner with that district a lot to send our student teachers or students doing internship opportunities and how I'm going to prepare them for what they're going to see or what kind of classroom practices that they can use. It's so really have to look at things a lot differently than I did in the past.
1: Have the water is still unsafe, correct?
2: Um, that depends on who you ask. So if you ask our former governor Snyder, the water is fine because they switched it back to shortly after the uproar in 2016, they switched the water back to the Detroit, the Lake Huron water. And the, the
1: pipes that were corroded,
2: the pipes are still corroded. However, that is the problem. So a lot of people say, even though you switched back, you still have all these chemicals that you use to treat the water. So, um, So they're replacing pretty much all the pipes in the city. That's been ongoing for a little while, but it is supposed to be finished uh, in like last fall and it's not. And then of course with the pandemic, all construction has stopped on any pipe replacement. There's also a little controversy over how to approach the pipe replacement among uh, like the city council and the former mayor. But I think for the most part, they're working on replacing all the pipes. But more importantly, residents, I get the feeling like a lot of residents I talk to don't trust the government when they say the water is safe. They, and that is a, that is the interesting piece about working in Flint is residents have zero trust now in their, in authority figures, in the government, in their governor, in their mayor, in any representatives that they will do what's best for them anymore. And that's sad, but also uh, accurate considering how they were how they were treated, uh, when basically residents calls that the water was unsafe was ignored. You know, back when they when people were getting rashes and were getting sick, you know, the governor was like, oh, they're just getting used to the switch. Like, you know, there's some, just some kinks to figure out or, oh, you spoil your water it'll be fine. It was a water main break. And a lot has come out lately that the government knew full well what they were dealing with. And we're really trying to Kind of make the optics look a little better, right? And so they weren't poisoning a whole city. It was just a, just a little water main break or just to get used to the water. And the, yeah, the it wasn't until the outbreak of Legionnaire's disease where people were actually dying from the bacteria in the water that they kind of had to, they made these connections to this. It's been really interesting that, but you think about teachers as authority figures too. So I send my student teachers in to a building they, from their schooling, expect, you know, like, well, kids need to respect me. I'm the teacher. Like, that's how this goes. And I'm like, well, first of all, that's not true really for any student. But nonetheless, like, these students, what possible reason would these kids have to trust any authority figures right now? So you have to really work to earn their trust right now. Like, this is really important. And that's something I've had to really focus on with some of my, with some of my students, preparing them to go in.
1: So I guess that's the the next question. How is your uh, preparing teachers to teach in Flint, do their student teaching teaching Flint, how has that changed since, well, over these past couple of years?
2: Well, so I've... I've always sort of advocated, like, so a lot of my research and in instructional practices has been on, like, a community-based approach. Like, I've been really interested in researching, you know, project-based learning for civic engagement, something that will have an impact on communities. One of the draws for me to come to Flint in the first place, the reason why I wanted to go to the University of Michigan Flint is because they had started this process of organizing a place-based teacher education program, a a program where you come to learn how to teach in the Flint context, like very locally rooted and very community based where you would actually partner with community groups to, and schools, um, not just schools, but like other community partners, businesses, and neighborhood associations to kind of help our students understand the importance of a local context to learning how to teach. That was one of the draws when I got there. And then that became to me even more important after the water crisis because even though these Flint students do have some needs that they're going to have, they're going to have to be addressed, cognitive needs and emotional, social needs, but they're also not victims either. They also, there's also a lot of assets to being in Flint. They also come with them a whole life perspective. So these students aren't thing broken pieces to be fixed, but they are humans that need to be supported in all their ways, right? Positive, negative. So I'm trying personally to kind of counter my students' narrative about Flint. So kind of trying to bust the negative stereotyping of the city, trying to take away a little bit from the deficit model of Flint, which I think also applies to urban schools and black children in general, right? People don't, I don't want to go teach in urban city X. It's going to be really difficult or these kids are going to be too hard to teach. I'm trying to bust that myth up a little bit. Uh, and it's a fine line because you do want to make sure my students aren't ignoring what the Flint kids would need, but also trying to see them as as real human beings and full human beings, other than just kids that have been poisoned by lead. So that so that's what we're we t- I take my students out into the city as much as possible to try to get them to see that you know Flint is a real place. It seems weird because it, because you think well they if they go to Flint every day for school and they're if they're from here that they really been to all parts of the city, but that's not necessarily true. I mean, my students might come to Flint from a few miles away and never go to certain parts of the city. I'm trying to kind of take them around to really learn about the local history here. The Yeah, the history of activism that even is rooted in the city from way before the water crisis.
0: One thing to the your point about avoiding a deficit model, I think one thing I heard recently, which I've, I've thought about is is that instead of seeing students or, or, or populations as victims, seeing them as targeted, right? That they've been targeted for certain types of inequity or, um, har- you know, harms, but, you know, that they're not just labeling them as victims of that and which allows for some agency and thinking about how people deal with it. But there's so many implications here for for complicating what democracy means. So much of our social studies curriculum in schools is often about you know, you go talk to your your elected representatives and they're supposed to help you solve it. And a lot of that obviously is falling apart here when you can't trust or you have a history of not being able to trust your elected representatives, which entire groups, you know, in the United States, minoritized populations have entire histories of not being able to trust elected leaders and what they say. And so that's, it's really important that we show that the different ways that informs that democracy and community and other things and citizenship can mean that they don't have these, these singular meanings that sometimes that form the ways we make changes is, is very different. Can I ask you a question? Is the, is this also is Flint as affected, as like Detroit has been by by you know the DeVos' influence in the state? We had a previous episode, episode forty two that really talked a lot about the ways that school choice was enabled, but also really dismantled public school systems and defunded them. Um, and I know that was a big problem in Detroit as, as the same thing happened in Flint.
2: I would say so there aren't um, as many I don't believe there is as many charter schools in this area as there are in Detroit there's so many um, in Detroit but I think the the rapid population loss has also in, in Flint has helped with the sort of dismantling of public education in the city so school closings are a regular a regular piece but in, in Flint the big I guess corporate interest is the Mott family, the C.S. Mott Foundation. So they have had the, the Mott Applesauce family, right? So they've had a huge hand in the city since like the 1800s in general and the influence of General Motors. So Flynn has been very like corporate interest for a very long time. I don't think, I wouldn't say it's as heavy as the DeVosses have been, in, especially in like the Grand Rapids or Detroit area. But
1: What are the Applesauce
0: people focused on? Yeah, I need to. I, I need to know whether they're good or bad. Can I keep eating that applesauce or not?
2: <laughs> oh well, then, I can't, but you can keep eating your mat applesauce. Yes. Well, no. There's Charles Stewart Mott, who, I mean, he was sort of the inventor. Uh, not really, because of community school in Flint. Anyway, I guess he was not the inventor of the concept. He's the invent- brought community schools model to Flint. Um, there's okay. a really there's a really interesting read. From Andrew Highsmith called Demolition Means Project Progress. It's all about Flint, but he writes about the community schools movement in Flint, but also it was also sort of C.S. Mott's way of keeping Flint very racially segregated as well. So that was an issue wow. with that. I know, but that's there are other factors to that too. But then like the Ruth Mott Foundation is this wife and they, they do a lot of, I mean, they fund a lot of educational initiatives in the city. A lot. I mean, a lot of things probably would not be happening in the city without the Mott family's money. so it's it's interesting. People will have their criticism, sure, but they've done a lot of a lot of good work in the city as well.
0: Well, and that it also gets to a, a larger debate in education and and just society in general about the degree to which we have to rely on people with extreme wealth, for philanthropically funding, Things that probably should just be publicly funded. Right? Well, that—that that is a
2: Flint story right there. I mean, Magic Johnson funds lunches in the right. city, some um, schools. Okay, Elon Musk has <laughs> is funding our one do, one-to-one devices in Flint community schools.
1: Computers uh, or something, not that, flamethrowers, correct? Of course, he is.
2: <laughs> right, no Teslas, but. Yeah, But yeah. But when you see like a Tesla around Flint, you know, it's Elon Musk has come to visit. That's really. <laughs> but then, And then what else? Oh, J- Jaden Smith, Will Smith's son, is funding these water boxes throughout the city where residents can go because the state has now stopped distributing water bottles. They did that for a couple years now. They said they don't need to do that anymore, but it still needs to be done. So again, you have to have this philanthropic well, you know, wealthy people coming in to provide this for the city instead. So I believe that's an undertaking from Jaden Smith. I need to learn a little bit more about this. But they're position they're positioned around the city where you can go like refill your water jug for free.
0: Right. It just and it it's part of a larger problem. It feels like we shouldn't have to, you know, wake up every morning and be like, Well, I hope Jeff Bezos does the right thing for the environment. Fingers crossed. Um, it yes, feels like these these are issues of public interest and should be addressed publicly, right? Not not philanthropically, because that's such a hit or miss. And in education, you know, we've had the Gates Foundation and Mark Zuckerberg's gotten involved in education. And, you know, they have these very tech views of what education has disrupted personalized learning. And a lot of it hasn't worked. So it's to me not the best way to do things. Okay. Sorry. I'm off my well, soapbox now, Michael.
2: Other, we can have a whole other podcast to talk about whether these philanthropic initiatives are really what's best but we're <laughs> that so
0: can we, we, we have that a different one? podcast we've already recorded a podcast where we talked about soapboxes and getting up on them it was oh. just a soapbox episode it was great actually that was our civic online reasoning episode with sarah McGrew, if you want to go back and listen to that one
2: <laughs> well in many ways this is my soapbox episode you guys are letting me come talk about an issue that's very personal yeah. that's
0: well good. it's it's such a critical issue, and so Dr. Whitlock tell us what what advice do you have for educators? what can we learn from the tragedy of what's happened in Flint for for society for education? What, what advice can can you give us out of these experiences you've had?
2: So advice and takeaways are different things so advice I would have for educators is to listen to your students first and foremost, like I mentioned earlier, my students were the ones that alerted me to what's wrong, right? Not the news, not the, you know, not the elected officials or my bosses at work telling me water was fine. It's my students. The people that were really living it were there to share their life. So leave space in your classrooms for students to share their life with you. And they will, they will. And you will learn a lot of things about what they're dealing with, what they're grappling with. You know, like I'll never forget the first time my student, James was his name, said, I got $500 water bill and I can't even drink it. It's poison. And I was just like, okay, we, what? We need to talk about this some more. <laughs> I was like leaving that space and that opportunity to do that. And then when things go crazy, when a crisis does hit, even like the pandemic we're in, you know, like you mentioned earlier at the top of the the show, sometimes you just gotta leave, you got to leave space to talk about what you're going through right now and kind of throw out the curriculum a little bit and say, let's process this together like what are you what are you feeling how and don't try to fix you don't even need to fix it there's no way um there's no way i can fix this but i can give space we can talk about it you know and i remember i remember starting to talk about like trying to bring up a more academic discussion about the water crisis and my students were like over it they did not want to discuss it and i just was like okay that's okay today like because they live. they've been living it and they were like do we really have to discuss water shutoffs, Annie? Like, do we have to? I don't think. Well, no. Okay. That's okay. I'll think of another topic. Yeah, <laughs> uh, just I had that- the...
0: <laughs> I had the same experience with coronavirus that we we were able to drop and talk about it, but I think we we talked about it as a class and you know students had mixed feelings. We ended up deciding as a class to do one spend one week with it, but I also told students like if you just don 't want to like explore this more, you can do an alternative assignment they and they decided they they wanted to learn more, but um they were on the fence a little we discussed it for a bit, so yeah, hearing your students out about where they 're yeah. at and whether it 's it's yeah it 's something you want to make. an intellectual activity at that time
2: so if you're not in flint and you're outside but just like hearing about us because like i said my experience is really different right i i treat it i have to treat it a little bit differently because my my students are still living it but if you're not like if you're outside of flint but you want to teach about flint there's so many great lessons about environmental justice environmental racism and the fact that yes you do need access to clean water to have an education or to live to wash your hands in a pandemic guys this is really important so there's lots of ways that you can teach about flint if you're not from flint that i think are sort of ways to get your students thinking about these things even just asking questions like should we have to pay for water this is an issue going on in michigan in flint in detroit and really a lot of communities all over the country with issues of water access in the United States. I mean, people in Flint are waiting hours and hours lining up at churches to get bottled water, like 5 hours to get bottled water in the United States in 20 minutes where, from where I live. But in Detroit, water people have had their water shut off for months because their bills are way too high to pay and now they can't wash their hands in a pandemic. And Detroit is the is like the one of the It's one of the hot spots. One of the hot spots yeah. in country so this is those two things are connected you know our governor signed an executive order to turn everybody's water back on but I don't think that's happened like with efficient speed so <laughs> but that's something you could you could discuss like with your students you know is water something that you should have to pay for
0: and I'm, I'm very I'm very brainwashed by the inquiry models because I hear like compelling questions because I'm always looking for them because they're the they give you the source but is is water a human right right is health care a human right? Those things and those same things are coming up with, with, you know, some of the crises related to the pandemic and whether people even want to go in because they're scared about they can't afford to go see a doctor to see if they have, the you know, yeah. coronavirus. And so um, some of those questions, again, I think to me, good social studies ask those questions that are most vital to us and explores them in the right situations when they're the right things to do at that time
2: another good one that relates to the pandemic and to flint both is should elected officials always make every decision for their constituents Mm -hmm. or something to that effect because like in flint we're talking we're seeing this now with the pandemic nationally but like in flint this whole issue of the rights of the people right if you elect your mayor in an election, that mayor should get to make the decisions for you, right? So not, mm-hmm. or should the governor be allowed to appoint someone to subvert that process? Because you also elected a governor in your state, possibly. Like this, is, these are interesting conversations about whether the state has authority over the city, and I think we're also seeing that in the pandemic about the federal government saying the states are having to take care of their own testing and things like that. So I mean uh, that that. That happened in Flint, right? Like the emergency manager was appointed by the governor and the residents were furious. They didn't elect that person, the people, there's actually several people, one after the other, but they, they didn't, they didn't appoint those people. And in fact, like this back in 2014 or 15, like the city council voted unanimously to switch the water back from the Flint river to, to Lake Huron to Detroit and six, seven to nothing. And the emergency manager was like, we can't afford that. We're not doing that. So, like, you elected a city council, and they voted something for your benefit, <laughs> and the, go- the person appointed by the governor was just like, no, that's too expensive. Right,
0: right. That, that oh. is,
2: like, do they have the authority to do that? Can a, governor, can a governor appoint somebody to do that? Should they be able to do that? I don't know. I think it brings up a lot of interesting questions about levels of government.
0: absolutely federalism and then how it operates in the state yeah i live in texas where governor abbott chooses whether he's responsible for local issues based on what he feels at the moment right sometimes he tells cities they cannot for example ban plastic bags he told texas they couldn't he told denton that we could not frack but when this crisis broke out he said it's up to cities uh we can't do anything we and then two weeks later he changed his mind and said he's in charge again and they have to follow his order. So he just changes it every other day based on uh, how he's feeling, which is an important issue to, to consider. And mm-hmm. should should things be set up differently and, and understanding in those local decisions and how they're made and who has real power? Um, yep. Well, a lot of you questions. know, and
2: it, it's interesting because our former governor was, I mean, he ran on a platform that he was a businessman. That was his, like, that was his platform. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I, and Detroit was going through bankruptcy at the time when he got elected. I mean, it, so he got elected. People elected him in the state anyway, because he was good with money. He's the business guy. He was a one tough nerd. That was his like slogan. Mm-hmm. It's And so they, they got what he did, what they, what they elected him to do. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't, you can probably get my political leanings for our former Republican governor, but
0: reminds but like, me a bit of Ben Wyatt from Parks and Rec.
2: Oh yeah, no, I would love Ben. <laughs> ben Wyatt was a, even though he had that issue with what being mayor of a, town when
0: he was younger right like i would take him the ice yeah he he started ice town and made the city go bankrupt
2: yeah i mean i don't know who
1: who doesn't do that when they're 18
0: i know this (laughs) is a parks and rec reference um if you do not have not watched that show and need something to watch it's a good pandemic show to watch yeah a lot of local government there's actually a decent amount of local government and how decisions are made um on that show so there's there's some social studies lessons there
1: it makes me happy it's like the west wing but funny <laughs> and local
2: i take ben wyatt ben wyatt can help govern our state anytime like he can that's fine i'm okay with that so actually i'd rather have leslie note to be honest with you
0: there we go
1: oh of course and luckily there's gonna be a new episode in a couple
0: days <laughs> yeah it will have oh, pro- it would have already aired by the time this comes happened. on yeah so so hopefully people enjoyed that so
2: So, yeah, I mean, in 2020, the water crisis is still going. It's still very complicated. It's still ongoing. I still try to remind people as much as possible that Flint does not yet have clean water. And even when that day finally comes, I'm not 100% sure the residents will believe it. So we'll see. I think they get to decide when the water crisis is over, to be honest with you. And that's an interesting, another interesting, compelling question for another day. Is the water crisis over? Who gets to decide when it's over? I think for a lot of teachers in the city, like I mentioned before, it's really just beginning. Really kind of depends on who you ask. Parents, um, it's a lifetime right now that we're working with. so. So it's still there. It's still ongoing. There's a lot of actually just in the last week, If you're interested in uh, reading more about the water crisis, there's a story that just popped up through Vice, um, an investigative journalist sort of uncovered how the former governor tried to cover up the water crisis even more. There was recently, if you want to Google a 60-minute story from mid-March, right before the pandemic happened. You can see actually kind of an interesting story from Dr. Mona, she's known in Flint, a pediatrician who sort of uncovered the connection between children's blood levels and the water switch. She's doing a lot with the Flint registry, trying to connect families to resources that are available, but then also doing a study of baby teeth. Did you know that your baby teeth are like, they have like rings on a tree. So like, this is how it's been explained to me. So I'm doing probably a terrible job of recounting this science to you third hand, but if you take like baby teeth from the kids in Flint, there's a way to study it to see when you were exposed to lead and how much, even in utero, because you're born with all your baby teeth. Isn't that
1: wild?
2: Oh, wow! Yeah, I'm saving all my daughter's teeth, which I think most moms do anyway. But mine is for science. But that's okay. <laughs> well, uh, there's also a lot of good Flint, like local journalist outlets, like East Village Magazine, like really cut, do a good job covering the. Not only the water crisis, but I think like what's going on in education in the city right now, which I believe is very much connected and kind of the turbulence of what's going to happen when um, all these kindergartners hit Flint here, in Flint community schools here in a few months. Well, so it's still you, we're still something we're still living with.
0: So you don't have to even Google those. We will add those all in the show notes, and so if you check out the show notes, we will get those all there for you to find. So thank you for both joining us and helping us curate this show notes as a, as a resource for people who want to learn more about what's happening in Flint. And thank you for just sharing all your wisdom with us.
2: No problem. And I'll be happy if anyone wants to get a perspective from, from uh, someone that works in Flint, I'd be happy to come talk to classes, college students and otherwise, or connect you with other people, other Flint residents that might want to come talk to you.
1: Oh my goodness. It's almost like you're saying our next line. Thank you for joining uh-huh. us. We hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces and <laughs> you'll, she'll come to your class.
0: So i
2: will be more than happy to.
0: And so uh, how, how do people get in touch with you? Where can they find you online?
2: They can find me on Twitter at Annie Whitlock. I'm also on Instagram at Flintstagram 18. It's my way of sort of documenting cool and interesting things that are happening in the city to try to give that different perspective of the city of flint i have not posted on there in a very long time because it has been several weeks since i have been to flint (laughs) unfortunately Uh, but i promise it is an active account when not in a pandemic i promote local businesses things like that it's been good (laughs)
0: when they're open we will definitely get those also linked in the show notes and just thank you again uh, dr whitlock for joining us today And like Michael said, we'll continue those discussions online and and Diane's willing to uh, connect with you if you have more questions or help you connect with people. Be safe. Thank you again.
1: Now, at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, hit us up. We will be on Twitter again at some point. Uh, We also have our personal Twitter accounts. I'm at 42 Think Deep, a reference to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And Dan is
0: not too creative at Dan Kratka.
1: We're also on the Facebook still, even though Dan doesn't always want us to be. <laughs> and if you haven't, and really come on, subscribe to Division of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere you want us to be. Bonus, I think we have hours and hours and hours of content so that can get you through some time.
0: Yeah, we need to add it up. It's quite a bit. And you know what? I think with as many hours of content as we put together, we deserve a five star review. If you could get in there and leave that, that helps people find this podcast. We really appreciate it. And it makes us feel good. It does. It does. It's and a does. tough time. It's a tough time. It is. <laughs> I'm and tired. as always, we thank somebody else who's stuck at home, Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas, for his editing skills. As Michael mentioned, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Krepke. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Divisions of Education Podcast. Setting up.